Welcome to the Immigration Hour. It's great to be with you guys today. Thanks for listening uh, to our show. Uh, I'm your host, Charles Cook, uh, here at Cook Baxter Immigration. Um, uh, We've been now on the air for approaching 12 years in our podcast. Unfortunately, not all the podcasts are on this particular site. Uh, you can pull them up on the other Immigration Hour uh, or the Immigration Hour on iTunes for all my old podcasts. You want to hear all the terrible predictions I've made over the years on lots of different things that we're passing. Uh, today is Election Day up in New Hampshire. Uh, and I guess we'll see uh, what ends up happening uh, for the, this presidential nomination period. Uh, I'm holding out hope that uh, we will nominate somebody who can beat Trump. I mean, honestly, as a as someone who uh, let's say I was formerly known as a Republican, um, uh, I see Trump as a danger to America, generally speaking, and of course, certainly a danger to the GOP, which he has now overtaken and and uh, destroyed. Uh, thank goodness Mitt Romney's there, uh, which apparently is now going to be kicked out of the GOP. Uh, sorry, Mitt, but. Thanks for standing up for your principles. I wanted to take some time today because I've been a lot of, a lot of stuff on the Twitterverse or the immigration verse on Twitter recently about uh, the decisions of the Board of Immigration Appeals, which seem to be coming out much more precedent decisions, which seem to be coming out much more rapidly over the course of the last year or so. Many of these decisions are rewriting the laws on asylum, and many of these decisions have been uh, have been written by uh, one judge, or at least uh, a judge that's been on the panel of a lot of these. And this is the acting um, uh, chairman of the BIA, Judge Malfras. What I'd like to do today is take kind of a dive into some of these decisions. So we can really see uh, what it is that um, uh, that's happening here, get a better idea of why it's happening, uh, and maybe some uh, some ways around uh, uh, to deal with this. Uh, the most recent decision uh, comes from uh, just yesterday. Just yesterday it came out. This decision is uh, called Matter of E R A L. Uh, now, in case you don't know this, those that, you know, think, oh, I'm not going to listen to a podcast on asylum law or, you know, immigration court stuff. Just remember, this is this where, when it happens to asylees, much like the greater scope, if it happens to immigrants first, immigrants are the canary in the coal mine, asylum seekers are the canary in the immigration coal mine. So let's take a look at here uh, what uh, this particular decision, a matter of E-R-A-L, uh, which is dated February 10th, but was came out yesterday, says... Now, in this particular decision, uh, Mr. E.R.A.L. was a landowner, um, as was his families in Guatemala. And uh, the idea here uh, was that in 2008, on two different occasions, members of the Couches drug cartel approached the respondent and his father and threatened to kill them if they did not use their land to cultivate marijuana for the cartel. For the cartel. Approximately a month after the respondent's second encounter with the cartel, his father was fatally shot. Subsequently, or just previously, his godfather was killed in 2007, and the godfather in two, and, and the cartel in 2008 killed the godfather's 13-year-old son in front of the child's grandparents. Um, and uh, the cartel subsequently appropriated the godfather's land, and then, of course, came for uh, 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 E.R.A.L.'s land. That is the 
summary given by, uh, by the Board of Immigration Appeals, who have held that a foreign national status as a landowner does not automatically remember that per- render that person a member of a particular social group for purposes of asylum and withholding removal. Now, let's take a, do a little quick primer on asylum law. Uh, to uh, prevail an asylum case, you must show either that you have suffered past persecution or that you have a reasonable fear of future persecution based upon one of five grounds, um, race, religion, national, nationality, um, uh, and uh, political opinion, and being a member of a, quote, particular social Group, particular social group has been under attack by the Trump administration uh, because many anti-immigration judges that have been out there, and there's a lot of anti-immigration, anti-asylum immigration judges, have hated what has been a uh, a gradual expansion of what a social group is. You know, to things like being gay, um, to things like being a battered spouse, to things uh, like being targeted uh, as as a young man uh, by gangs. Um, and in this context, the, the claim was that the foreign national as a landowner was part of a social group of similarly situated landowners. Now, the Board of Immigration Appeals has long held, going back yeah 30 years or so, uh, that a particular social group requires that you have an immutable characteristic, an immutable characteristic. And in a famous case, once held that a taxi cab driver is not a social group because you can always change jobs and therefore you would not be a taxi cab driver, wildly ignoring social structure and culture in other countries. Uh, you know, it's like saying a member of the, the, the lowest caste in India that that's not a social group because, hey, you could change your caste. You know, really, no, that's not exactly how it works in my home country. Um, and uh, so in this context, they said, no. To establish a particular social group based on land ownership, a foreign national must demonstrate by evidence in the record that members of the proposed group share an immutable characteristic and that the group is defined with particularity and it's perceived to be socially distinct in the society in question. Yes, because landowners have never been socially distinct anywhere. Wait, they kind of have. Uh, we In the United States, you couldn't vote unless you were a landowner. You were socially distinct, easily recognizable as a landowner. Why would we think that that's different in other parts of the world, even in 2020? Um, the respondents proposed social groups comprised of landowners and uh, landowners who resist drug cartels in Guatemala are not valid on the evidence in the record. Now, this is a decision um, uh, issued by uh, Judge Malfris, who was, wrote this as the acting chairman, Judge Creppy, who used to be the BIA chairman, who appears to be desperate to keep his job, and Keith Hunsucker, an old friend of mine, a former trial attorney, you guessed it, in Atlanta, uh, who was an immigration judge for a long time. Uh, and I have known Keith as generally a reasonable guy, um, not necessarily on asylum cases, but is generally a reasonable guy and certainly a good man uh, who I've known for a long time. What's interesting about this particular decision uh, is uh, the court's ruling uh, in uh, or the discussion on page 772. So you can find matter of E-R-A-L 
uh, at 27 INN deck 767, which is BIA 2020. So this is interim decision 3976. You can just Google interim decision 3976 and you would find this. Uh, but it starts on page 767. If you go to 772, uh, the, by the very top of the page, the board uh, and Judge Malfred say this, respondent also does not specify what degree of resistance against the cartels a landowner must engage in before he or she will be considered a member of the proposed group, nor does he specify <coughs> what must motivate a landowner to resist the cartels before he'll be included in the group. Because the characteristics defining the proposed, proposed group provide no clear benchmark for determining who falls within the group, therefore the group lacks particularity. So what you're saying is the foreign national testifying in his native language needs to specify what level of resistance uh, is uh, required to be part of his prisoner's group. Uh, additionally, the board rules that the respondent has not identified a record evidence demonstrating that its proposed groups are perceived as significantly distinct groups within the society in question, namely El Progreso Guatemala. So what's great about that particular quote is that the board is recognizing that you can be a member of a proposed group in a small part of the country and not have to show countrywide persecution. That's what, that's what any rational lawyer would take from that. Respondent simply asserts that rural Guatemalan landowners are vulnerable cartel to cartels that wish to use their land to cultivate drugs. However, the fact that these landowners may be vulnerable to theft, coercion, or other criminal activities does not establish that those living in El Progreso or the cartels themselves perceive members of the respondent's social group as being, quote, set apart or distinct from other persons within the society in some significant way. Um, I want to thank Judge Malfris for making it easier in some respects to get asylum as landowners and for laying out exactly what we must state uh, in as lawyers in our opening statements and in the evidence that we present to the court. So that's a matter of ERAL, which just came out yesterday. Prior to that, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, in Interim Decision 3975, which was decided January 31st, um, this is a matter of J.J. Rodriguez-Rodriguez. So it's J.J. Rodriguez-Rodriguez. You could just call him J. Rodriguez. He was appearing pro se. Yes, the Board of Immigration Appeals issued a binding decision on all the courts in a case where the, out, where the respondent was not represented. And in a case in which the government had in fact appealed the case. In this particular case, the immigration judge underneath had terminated removal proceedings without prejudice uh, because uh, the government uh, did not um, uh, properly serve this person. So this is it. It's coming out of San Diego. The, the immigration judge uh, in this particular case, um, this is what happened. The DHS provided a respondent with a document entitled Migrant Protection Protocols, which is written in the English language, instructed the respondent to arrive at a specific location at San Ysidro, uh, port of entry, at 9 a.m. so that he could be transported to the court. 
A copy of the sheet was provided, MPP sheet was provided in Spanish language, and both versions of the document came to the signature of the respondent. The DHS returned the respondent to Mexico pursuant to the MPP to await his removal hearing. Respondent did not appear for his hearing. The DHS requested that the immigration judge enter an in absentia order. The DHS argued that the respondent was provided with adequate notice of his hearing and that the MPP sheet advised the respondent of the procedure for obtaining transportation to his hearing. Citing due process concerns, the immigration judge concluded that DHS did not provide the respondent with sufficient notice of his hearing and terminated the respondent's removal proceeding without, without prejudice. The immigration judge did not allow DHS to present evidence regarding the respondent's removability. So basically, the judge said, you know what? This piece of paper does not adequately explain to the person why he must come back. Uh, and so he terminated the case. The DHS appealed that decision. Now, I'm going to assume this is the judge in San Diego who has been repeatedly terminating procedures to hundreds of people uh, is what, what we're being told by a lot of our colleagues down there. And in this case, Judge Malfris acting with Judge Crepe again, um, and this time with Judge Cassidy, a former immigration judge or maybe even a current immigration judge from Atlanta. It's unclear because his name keeps appearing on the hearing notices, issued this decision written by Judge Malfris again, uh, in which he held that where the Department of Homeland Security, or ICE, returns a foreign national to Mexico to await an immigration hearing pursuant to the migrant protection protocols, which in and of themselves are a laughable joke, and I believe wildly illegal, and provides the foreign national with sufficient notice of that hearing, an immigration judge should enter an in absentia order of removal if the alien fails to appear for the hearing. Um, the Department DHS appealed this decision uh, while uh, there apparently was amicus curiae in the case, um, but still unrepresented foreign national. This guy probably doesn't even know he has a deportation order. As far as we know, he in fact may be dead. Um, and certainly now that his name is broadcast everywhere as J.J. Rodriguez Rodriguez, uh, it, uh, it will uh, certainly... Um, uh, maybe inure to his detriment further fo going forward. But in this case, it's up. Uh, MPP is good. Due process. Don't you immigration judges worry about due process. That's, your not, that's not your problem. That's our problem. We'll worry about that. Thank you, Judge Malfres, for cementing the administration's decision. Um, as, we, uh, as we go a little bit further back in time, uh, we're going to look at uh, the case that came out a week before that on January 22nd, 2020. This is a case called Matter of Angel Mayan Vinale. Um, and you guessed it, it was decided by Judge Malfres, Judge Crepe, and Judge Cassidy this time. Again, this is a 2 4 for Judge Cassidy, Judge Crepe, now on all three of these most recent decisions. This one, at least, was Mr. Mayan Vinale was at least represented by somebody. In the holding in this particular case, Judge Malfra said, in assess assessing whether to grant an alien's request, he wrote this one again, he's a busy guy, in assessing whether to grant an alien's request for continuance regarding an application for collateral relief, like a U visa or an SIJ case, the, the foreign national's prima facie eligibility for relief and whether it will materially affect the outcome proceedings are not dispositive, especially where other factors including the uncertainty as to when the relief will be approved or become available way against granting continuance. Basically, this decision gives immigration judges, while not directly on asylum, gives immigration judges the right to say, you know what, 
yeah, you in fact may be able to get a green card for special immigrant juveniles, but that could be a couple years from now. So I'm going to throw it to you deported. Or you've been granted, as in this case, deferred action by the judge in a U visa case by USCIS, but I'm still going to order you deported because your U visa could be a really long way away. True, but you have deferred action in which ICE cannot deport you. Why? I mean, really, it is one of the more ridiculous decisions coming out, but I guess when you're trying to impress somebody enough, in the hierarchy to get named the permanent judge, maybe you've got to take crazy cases and make decisions like this. Um, if we um, go back a little bit further on the board, um, we want to uh, take a look at um, matter of uh, YIM. So matter of YIM was issued December 12th, um, 2019. This was before a panel which involved Judge Malfras. Judge Creppy and Judge Baird, who was also, and maybe still is, an immigration judge in Atlanta, little unclear how you can be both a, an appellate judge and a regular judge at the same time uh, on these cases. Uh, judge Baird actually wrote this decision, but of course it's unanimous. Uh, in this particular case, in YIM, they held that an immigration judge may rely on inconsistencies to support an adverse credibility finding. Now, why is that important? When you're filing for asylum, when you want asylum, if there is any inconsistency between your application and your testimony, a prior statement and your testimony, an interview and your testimony, the judge will say this, oh, were you lying then or are you lying now? Uh, if you have this one thing that's inconsistent, I, I can believe that everything about you is a lie and that you're lying to me. Uh, completely ignoring how memory works in human beings, completely ignoring that, um, and then coming to this conclusion. So an immigration judge may rely on inconsistencies to support an adverse credibility finding. And of course, if the judge finds adverse credibility, you would lose your asylum case. As long as either the immigration judge, the applicant, or ICE has identified the discrepancies and the applicant has been given an opportunity to explain them during the hearing. <clears throat> That's one. But two, another part of the decision, an immigration judge may, but is not required to, personally identify a, quote, obvious consistency where it is, quote, reasonable to assume, close quote, that the applicant was aware of it and had an opportunity to offer an explanation before the judge relied on it. So in this particular case, is an appeal of a February, 20, uh, February 11, 2019, a year ago today, uh, decision in which the judge denied asylum for relief uh, under the rules. In this particular case, the individual is from the Ukraine, and he was in the U.S. under the visa waiver program. He sought asylum within a year of his arrival in 2014, and he was placed in asylum-only proceedings. In a hearing, the immigration judge, uh, before the judge, the applicant testified that he refused to serve in the Ukrainian military because his religious beliefs as a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. He claimed that he fears he will be persecuted on account of his religion and for being perceived as a military deserter. The applicant testified that he was initially called into military service in 2008, and upon his request, he was allowed to engage in alternative military service and communications. He stated that he was not required to partake in weapons training and was discharged as a private soldier without a rank after one year. 
He further testified that he was recalled to military duty in August 2014 and again requested alternative service based on his religious views. As a result, military officers called him a deserter and beat him on two occasions. The applicant stated that the beating left him with post-contusion panoma, bruises to his chest, and internal bleeding for which he received medical care. A day after beginning treatment, he traveled to Hungary, where he obtained a fraudulent passport. He returned to Ukraine the next day for more medical treatment. In September 2014, he filed a complaint against the officers, was then attacked and beaten on his way home. The immigration judge denied the claim, finding that he was not credible, primarily because of inconsistencies in the record. And therefore, the guy challenges it on appeal. So they go through kind of a statement about the record and the law, about about the law on inconsistencies. Um including citing a Second Circuit case, this case rose in the Second Circuit, that any inconsistencies that an immigration judge relies upon must be, quote, tethered to the evidentiary record. If an immigration judge does not find a proffered explanation for an inconsistency persuasive, he or she should state the reasons why on the record to allow for proper appellate review. Uh, but the immigration judge need not re- engage in robotic incantations to make clear he has considered or rejected his proffered explanation. Um, now, this is interesting. Let's let's get down to the part of the record uh, where uh, they find that this particular person uh, is inconsistent. What, what, what about this guy's case uh, is inconsistent? And um, here uh, they ruled that they did the following. The applicant testified, found that his that testimony was internally inconsistent and consistent with the documents he presented. For instance, the applicant testified that he received an alternative service accommodation in 0708 and ended his service with no rank or equivalent to a private. But his military identification showed that he had been promoted to a senior soldier during that time. When the DHS attorney asked him to explain the inconsistency, the applicant stated he was unaware of the rank change. The immigration judge properly relied on that as an inconsistency between his testimony and the documentary evidence. Hmm. The applicant also testified that he was injured in August 2014. He obtained medical treatment as an outpatient for two months, but he changed his testimony in cross-examination and said that he had been treated for five weeks, ending in September 2014, which would be two months, August to September. The applicant's medical documents say he was treated until October 3rd. When the DHS attorney asked him to explain his inconsistency, the applicant stated, testified that it was the length of time recommended for treatment, but he ended treatment early. Okay. Applicant attempts to explain this discrepancy on appeal by saying the doctor occasionally came to his home to treat him during the time covered by the medical document. However, this difference differs from the record. So even though these two things don't really go to the heart of the matter, you know, were you treated for five weeks or eight weeks? Only eight weeks? You only five weeks? Oh, you must have lied. Therefore, everything that you said is a lie. Hmm. But what this decision does is literally puts the onus on individuals to make sure that unlike normal human beings, their story literally, no, no detail, not a single minutia of detail ever changes between what they wrote, their documents, and what they testified to in court. This is, of course, a virtually impossible standard to meet, particularly when a lot of times the government relies on statements given to an asylum officer or even to the CB Port of Entry, which are not verbatim transcripts of interviews um, and which may have and have been found in the case of CBP to be wildly inaccurate about what happens. 
So that's the decision that came out of why I am. What else happened as part of this? Let me take a break here and come back and talk about a couple more BIA decisions that have had a remarkable impact on, uh, on, on asylum cases here in 2020. Welcome back. It's great to be back with you on Immigration Now. I know for you it was no minutes. It was just no time for me. I was able to get myself a drink of water. The next decision that Judge Malfris wrote, uh, and by the way, he wrote this decision on December 6, 2019, um, when he was just a judge. So sometime between 20, December 6th and December 30th, Judge Malfurst became the acting board chairman. Uh, so the December 6, 29 decision, he, was, he, he wrote the decision again. So this is, like, four or five written decisions by him of the last six decisions of the BIA. On that decision with him was Judge Creppy once again. They're, they're tag team here. And this time, Judge Mullane. Uh, this was issued December 6th as a matter of OFAS, OFAS where they held uh, in regards to claims under the Convention Against Torture that tortious conduct, torturous, not tortious, which would be torts, this is torturous conduct committed by a public official who is acting in an official capacity that is, quote, under the color of law, is covered by CAT, the Convention Against Torture. But such conduct by an official who is not acting in an official capacity also known as a, quote, rogue official, is not covered by the convention. How convenient that is, even though that person is, in fact, an official of the government. The key consideration determining if a public official was acting under, quote, color of law is whether he was able to engage in tortious conduct because of his government position or if he could have done so without connection to the government. So a matter of OFAS is a very interesting case on this. This is a Guatemalan case again. And the respondent testified that he worked for 12 years as a salesman for a beverage distributor in Guatemala. In 2015, the respondent and six other employees were laid off, and he received a severance package of about $21,500. He used that to purchase land and cattle and went into the cattle business. In the middle of 2015, a family member warned the respondent to, to be careful, telling him that a number of police cars had been spotted around his house. On March 13, 2016, the respondent received a phone call from an unknown person who asked for all $21,500. Then he knew the respondent had the money. When the respondent said he had no money, the respondent says, yes, we know you do. The call told the respondent he must pay or he and his associate would kill the respondent's family. <clears throat> Two weeks later, men wearing shirts with the insignia of the Policia Nacional Civil, PNC, Guatemala's National Police, appeared at the respondent's door carrying high-caliber firearms. Respondent opened the front door partway, and the men pushed the door open and hit the respondent in the left shoulder with a gun, causing the shoulder to dislocate. The men also handcuffed the respondent and began trashing his house looking for money. They threatened to cut off his fingers if he did not pay them. The respondent told the men he had 10,000 quetzals in his car, which one of which them retrieved. Which one of them retrieved? He returned to the house with the money. Another man received a phone call indicating the neighbor had contacted the police, reported the servants at the house, and there were police en route, local police presumably. At that point, men removed the handcuffs. Um, from the respondent, and told him he had 10 days to pay the balance or he would be killed. One man threatened to take out the respondent's good eye if he reported him to the police. He must have had a bad eye. He did not respond to report the respond to this to the police. He did not see anybody for his injury. He left uh, Guatemala virtually immediately and entered uh, the United States and filed for asylum a little bit late. He unfortunately filed a late. Um, and uh, so his asylum application was time-barred. 
And uh, he was thus left with, uh, with applying for relief under the Convention Against Torture. Uh, the immigration judge held um, that there was no evidence to support that these were actual police officers, uh, as opposed to people just dressed like the police. And so they held that, you know, if they might, even if they were police officers, you know, clearly that's not part of their normal duties, uh, and therefore uh, they can't have be, can't be covered under the Convention Against Torture. Again, a wildly broad decision uh, on this case. Um, in evaluating, they said, if a public official is acting under color of law and inflicting torture, circuit, circuit courts have specifically relied on whether the government connections provided the officer with access to the victims or to his whereabouts or identifying information. And they cite a couple of cases where that's the, that's the case. Also relevant is whether a law enforcement officer was on duty and his official uniform at the time of the conduct. If so, it's more likely he acted under color of law. However, the use of official uniform is not dispositive because those items can be obtained outside the normal channels of government operations and may not be necessary to the official's ability to engage in tortious conduct. Um, this is um, basically a primer on how to excuse torture. Um, and not give people the protection under the Convention Against Torture. Again, thank you, Judge Malfres, for that decision. Um, it is uh, what you see, I think, as part of this, uh, that uh, there has been a concerted effort over the last few months by certainly one or two judges to rewrite significant porches of asylum law in ways that make it virtually impossible uh, to get asylum in many circumstances under which people are applying today. Now, this, of course, this goes hand in fist with uh, changes made by Attorney General Barr and Attorney General Sessions, all of which were done um, as part of a plan to make it virtually impossible to take advantage of the asylum system in the United States. And good asylum officers have still been granting asylum uh, but immigration judges are under more pressure than ever to emulate the Atlanta Immigration Court with denial rates exceeding 95% rather than immigration courts in New York or Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco, which grant asylum about 40% of the time. Uh, it is, it's a sad commentary that somehow some people believe that we can no longer afford to have mercy to people who seek the protection of the greatest country on earth, because that's what we are, aren't we? But we can't be great if we give mercy. You know, this that, that's really a sign of greatness, by the way. True sign of greatness is how you treat the least among us. I think there's a guy that talked about that about 2,000 years ago. So there's my comments this week on the Board of Immigration Appeals uh, and Judge Malfres's uh, uh, attempt here to rewrite the asylum laws. Judge Malfres, by the way, uh, he was appointed um, as acting chair in October 2019 by, uh, uh, by Judge Barr. He was appointed to the BIA uh, under Bush by A.G. Mukasey, received his Bachelor of Arts degree in 89 and a Juris Doctorate in 93, both from the University of South Carolina, served as an immigration judge in Arlington Immigration Court for three years, uh, before uh, being uh, nominated to the board. And before that, he worked at the White House under Bush under domestic policy. And before that, worked on the U.S. Senate Committee under the Judiciary, which included serving as the staff director on the Subcommittee of Criminal Justice, uh, and I'm sure working with Senator Grassley back in the day. 
Um, you know, it's it's uh, he, he you know he law, he law clerk for the Fourth Circuit. Clearly, a smart guy. Uh, it's just sad that uh, what we're seeing uh, is an is an intense decision to uh, intense effort to limit asylum in 2020 at a time when we should be expanding that to the least among us. Thanks for listening this week. Uh, hopefully next we'll be back next week. We'll see. We'll know what the results of the primary in New Hampshire were. We'll see uh, the race tighten as we move to the south and uh, Mayor Bloomberg's money starts taking effect. And at that point, I think we'll get a better impression about uh, who's going to face Donald Trump in November. Till next week, this shows Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour, Cook Baxter Immigration. If you want to make comments, make comments on our Twitter account at ccook, on our Facebook page at Cook Baxter, and of course, you can always email me at uh, chuckandimmigration.net. Till next week, have a great week.